Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and it's great to have you with us on yet another weekly journey into history, this time film history. I always keep a long list of stories to do, all kinds of stories. Some story ideas just keep knocking at my door, asking to be told, and today's story, We Had It All, Remembering Bogart and Bacall, is one of those. We recently played Casablanca here at 1001, the true story of the making of the greatest movie ever made, in a lot of people's minds, a movie which starred Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine, an American nightclub owner in Casablanca during World War II, and Ingrid Bergman, who played Ilse Lund, his old flame, who decided to rekindle things long enough to get Rick's help in securing a passport out of country for her husband, who was a Czech resistance leader. Most of you know the story, having recently heard our Casablanca episode. I might have missed a few things in that episode, but I can think of two. One, of the seven great quotes that came from Casablanca, six were spoken by Bogart, a record in the film industry for any one movie. And two, Harvard University, as I last heard, still offers the movie for students for some needed escape during the final week of exams. To get back to those knocks at my creative door, I recently read an article suggesting that we need more Hollywood heroes like Bogart and John Wayne and others as role models for today's young men, and I couldn't agree more. Not long after that, I caught an old country pop song called Key Largo, written and performed in 1982 by Bertie Higgins, recognizable to most generations now, which offers the chorus, We had it all, just like Bogie and Bacall. Starring in our own late late show, sailing away to Key Largo. That song is a classic and a standout, as was the Bogart movie that inspired the song, Key Largo. Then, to top it off, I was scheduling more old time radio episodes for my podcast, 1001 Radio Days, and decided to do a month of Bold Venture, a 50s vintage adventure series starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in the radio characters of Slate Shannon and Sailor Duval as they cruise the tough waters off Cuba, finding, as you might expect, intrigue, mystery, and romance. It was the perfect setup for them because they spent much of their time on their own sailboat, called the Santana. That radio show, Bold Venture, is a sort of a to-have-and-have-not adapted for radio, and it's good. The two work well together, and were it not for the fact that they were both constantly in demand for higher-paying gigs, they would have continued the series past 1952. Those were the golden years of radio, especially for action and mystery, and 1001 Radio Days brings it all back. Well, Bertie Higgins was right. They had it all, Bogey and Bacall. They became screen legends and an unforgettable part of our American culture, in real life and in film, and I'll tell you how it all started for them right after these sponsor messages. And now we return to We Had It All, Remembering Bogey and Bacall. I'll give you listeners some free advice, no matter what your age or background. If you want to spend a nice evening watching a film classic, find a comfortable place with a loved one or friend, pour your favorite drink, and cue up the movie To Have and Have Not. Because this story tells how Bogey and Bacall first met on that set, and this story will make that movie that much more enjoyable for you. Take my advice and share it with a friend. From the moment Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Betty Bacall met on the set of To Have and Have Not, it was obvious to everyone there that there were sparks, and lots of them. Viewers can tell from the way they react to each other in that movie, or any other for that matter. There were obstacles on the way to the altar, a wide difference in ages and background, and the fact that Bogart already had a wife, even though by now she was more a sparring partner than a mate. As a couple, Bogart and Bacall behaved in public and at home with a refusal to take each other seriously, and that seems to have kept them fueled. It was part of their attraction. Like a well-mixed drink, they just became a pair that was to stick together to the end. Director John Huston summed it up by saying, She was in love with him, and he with her, and anyone who liked Bogart liked her, meaning Bacall. They were a joy to behold together. Like most marriages, theirs had its storms. When they met, she was 19, and he was 44. But when the final days came for Bogey, 
Each of them showed an incredible courage and gallantry that lasted for Bacall the remainder of her days. Humphrey de Forest Bogart was born Christmas Day, 1899, in Sloan's Maternity Hospital in Upper Manhattan, to Dr. Belmont de Forest Humphrey and Maud Humphrey. He was 34, and she 33. Both were solid upper-class New Yorkers, he having graduated Columbia College of Physicians in 1896 and begun his practice soon afterward, and she making very good money illustrating stories for magazines. Their combined income allowed them to live very well, and their family sported a cook, a laundress, and two maids. Their home was a three-story limestone with bay windows located at 245 West 103rd Street near Riverside Drive, across the street from the old Hotel Marseille. Their summers were spent in their summer home at Canandaigua Lake, a favorite of New York high society in those years. One night, when Humphrey was only a few months old, his father, dining with friends at Lou Chow's restaurant on 14th Street, proudly said his son was destined to be a physician. He could tell from his strong grip, and he would be going to Yale. One day, Humphrey's mother gave the Irish maid a day off and decided to take Humphrey for a stroller ride in Central Park. While he played in his carriage, she made a sketch of him. When they returned home, she worked over the sketch and sent it off to an advertising agency. It was purchased by Mellon's Baby Food for use in their ads and on their labels, and it soon became the most popular baby picture of the day. It made the infant Humphrey famous as the original Maud Humphrey baby. At the age of two, Humphrey's sister Catherine Elizabeth was born, and soon after he developed pneumonia which convinced his mother that he was to be treated very delicately in the future. Not that she did it herself, that was the job of the servants, a fact that Bogart spoke of later in life when he was quoted as saying, I was brought up very unsentimentally, very straightforwardly. A kiss in our family was an event. Our mother and father didn't glug over my sisters and me. They had too many things to do, and so did we. We were mainly the responsibilities of the servants. Dr. Bogart did his best to help his son man up, taking Humphrey on camping and hunting trips as he got older, and teaching him how to handle a sailboat. By the time Humphrey was eight, he was an expert at sailing his own sloop at Lake Canandaigua. His love of boats and the sailing fraternity was to stay with him the rest of his life. Being burdened with the name Humphrey was not easy for him, according to his sister Pat. It sounded sissy to a lot of kids, his sister said and Bogey was always in fights. Also, she said, Mother used to dress him in little Lord Fauntleroy suits, and that didn't help either. Bogey hated our mother, even though she was soft on him, Pat said, but he had a crush on her father, who was a real man's man. Our parents always disagreed about our care. Mother wanted to rule the roost, but father wouldn't let her. One day, father hit Humphrey over something he said. Hit him in the mouth, hard. Humphrey screamed in pain. Mother was furious, and she screamed, If you ever hit him again, I'll kill you. The blow damaged a nerve to Bogey's upper lip. From then on, Bogart would have a scar and a slight lisp. Maybe that added toughness to his on-screen persona? Maybe not. But it did serve to make him unique and give him an unusual way of speaking. Parents can mold you in more ways than one. Bogey claimed once that his scar was a war wound. He never went into which war it was that caused it. Bogey's closest childhood friend was William A. Brady, Jr., son of a next-door neighbor named William Brady, who at the time was a very successful promoter and showman. He was the boxing manager for Gentleman Jim Corbett and James Jeffries, two of the top boxers in the business in the early 1900s. He had also produced nearly 300 plays and owned his own theater called The Playhouse in New York. Humphrey frequented the famous Orpheum Theater with his young friend Bill Brady and fell in love, crush style, with an English actress whose name he later forgot. Humphrey's parents warned him not to idolize fame, even considered it sinful, his father telling him that gentlemen's names should only appear in the papers three times, once when you were born, once when you're married, and once when you died. He was sent to Andover, the private school from which his father had graduated but didn't find it to his liking. He later said he was asked to leave due to his excessive high spirits and infractions of the rules. He was sent $25 to come home, which he did, 
and he spent the next two weeks moping around the house before announcing that he was joining the Navy. It was World War I. His parents, to his surprise, both fully supported his decision, and he soon found himself on convoy duty, dodging subs, aboard a troop transport called the Leviathan. He spent the next full year shuttling troops from Hoboken to Brest and Liverpool, making about 20 crossings before the November 11, 1918 announcement that the armistice had been signed and World War I, what they called the war to end all wars, was over. He had spent, he had spent two years in the Navy. He was now 20, and he would later admit, I was still no nearer to knowing what I wanted to be or what I was. He returned home for a few years, working for some of the Wall Street companies that his parents had connections with. And during this time, his father left his practice to work as a ship's doctor, leaving his mother free to constantly complain that she had been left with the responsibility of supporting the family. It was the 1920s, complete with speakeasies, bathtub gin, bootleggers, and gangsters gunning each other down in broad daylight, and the beginning of film production. He got back together with his old best friend, Bill Brady, and his sister, Alice, who suggested that Humphrey see your father about a job, which he did. He started as an office boy, and soon earned the trust of Brady Sr., and it wasn't long before Brady asked him to finish directing a picture he was making. But Humphrey soon felt overwhelmed, and Brady took over. But the one thing Humphrey was sure of was that he could write a better script, and he could manage the stage. He headed for the creative center of the city, Greenwich Village, and started writing. He started and completed a story which he later described as a real potboiler, full of blood and guts, and handed it to Mr. Brady. It was handed down from one producer to the next to the next until it finally ended up lying in the inside of a wastebasket. But Brady liked Bogart, and he figured that if he could get him going in theater, then maybe his own son, who had shown no interest, might get involved. He made Humphrey a stage manager at $50 a week. He was asked to manage Brady's wife's new play, A Ruined Lady, she being a very successful actress. Early on, the junior lead in the play became sick, and Humphrey was asked to stand in. He knew all the lines because he was the manager of the play and performed the part at a cast rehearsal. That was his first exposure to acting. He later said he was terrible, and fortunately Brady's wife Grace George got sick and the play was scrapped. But Humphrey was all in as a manager, and he found the work fulfilling. He had found his place, and it was on the stage. He wasn't what you would call a natural. He performed in three plays to terrible reviews and then was offered 150 a week by producer Rosalie Stewart to portray a newspaper man in Meet the Wife at the Claw Theater for 30 weeks. So after only three roles in the theater, he had made it into a hit show. It ran 32 weeks. This was an incredible piece of luck, as he had done nothing to deserve it. But luckily, someone had seen something in him that they liked. His mother and father were happy for him in that he had found something he could run with. He still managed to mess up his role, blowing his lines at one performance during the end of his run, but he kept trying and working as both an actor and a stage manager. And he actually did get some good reviews. Lauren Bacall was born Betty Joan Persky on September 16, 1924, within just a few days of Humphrey Bogart's applying for a marriage license for his first marriage. She was the only child of Natalie Weinstein of Jewish-Romanian parentage, and William Persky, an Alsatian, then employed as a salesman of x-ray machines and general surgical equipment, sort of like Will Smith in The Pursuit of Happiness. Bogie had grown up in much the same neighborhood, with all the advantages, while Betty was to grow up in a Jewish household under modest circumstances at best. Just a few weeks after her fourth birthday, Bogie married his second wife, Mary Phillips, who believed in his talent and encouraged him to learn all he could about acting. Their marriage got off to a good start and was going well, when the panic of 1929 set in, and it had a tough impact on the film business. Good films continued to make money, and it had made the transition to sound, so producers were desperately looking for actors with speaking talent. Humphrey was handed a huge break by Stuart Rose, who had married Humphrey's sister Pat, and was story editor of Fox Films. He needed actors, and they had tested almost every actor on Broadway, but the results were dismal, at best. But Bogart tested... It came up positive. They wanted him and offered him 750 a week in L.A., which was great money in 1930. His wife Mary was also acting on Broadway, but she refused to leave her work, saying her career was in New York, 
and considering the times and how tough it was to get and keep work, it was not an unreasonable demand. They decided that as a modern couple, he could date girls, and she could go out with whom she liked, and you can guess where that eventually ended up. Humphrey left for L.A., where he spent six weeks working as a voice coach for Charles Farrell, afterwards playing a juvenile role in a John Ford film with Victor McLaughlin and Spencer Tracy. And if you've been with us for the past year, you remember that Victor McLaughlin was a famous boxer-turned-actor and played opposite John Wayne in The Quiet Man in that big fight scene. Bogart stayed busy with smaller roles in films with big stars for 16 months, at which point his contract was dropped. The decision was made on the basis of his stiff upper lip and slight lisp, with someone at or near the top saying he would never make it on film with women. And bang, Bogart was out of work as fast as he had come into it. Coming home to New York, Bogart discovered that his wife Mary had fallen in love with a British actor named Roland Young, whom she had met on tour. So much for their arrangement. It was now 1933. The Depression was at its peak. Bogie's father had fallen on hard times, losing most of his savings when his bank collapsed. He and Maud were now living in a modest apartment in Tudor City. Humphrey was soon reduced to making food money by playing chess for 50 cents a game. He did pretty well, sitting in the window of an arcade, playing chess for 50 cents a game, and winning more than he lost. In 1933, his father died, leaving nothing behind but a lot of debt and an old-fashioned ruby ring he had worn as a wedding band, which he gave to Humphrey, and Bogey wore it for the rest of his life. He then turned his attention to learning more about acting. In describing these down days, he would later say, There's been a lot of bunk written about acting, but it isn't easy. You can't just make faces. If you make yourself feel the way the character would feel, your face will express the right things, if you're an actor. There are lots of things, like how you walk. Try walking up to a door and opening it sometime, on a stage. It isn't as simple as you think. And you can't stand close to anyone on the stage. Two objects together become one object in the eye of the audience. Same thing with a door. Here's an actor's trick. Keep looking at somebody's hands. Pretty soon he'll feel like his arms are 16 feet long. He'll fall apart trying to put them somewhere. You have to know what to do with your hands. All these things, you get to do them instinctively. Around this time, Betty, having enjoyed her 11th birthday, was treated to some photo sessions, the results of which were given to two well-known agencies, the Powers Agency and the Conover Agency. One of the partners in the Conover Agency at the time was a young Yale graduate named Jerry Ford, who, some 30 years later, would become president of the U.S., the Conover agency turned Betty down for work four times because they said they had too many like her already. She was a beautiful girl with long brunette hair and lovely features highlighted by almond-shaped eyes which were to become her trademark. She had some success as a pre-teen model, earning $10 an hour in the midst of the Depression. Not steady work, but definitely good pain. She wanted to quit school and go into acting, but her mother wanted her to finish high school first. Meanwhile, Bogart left the chess games for acting work. When a friend playwright wrote a part for him as a football player in a play called The Petrified Forest, which played for two weeks in Boston in 1935, he played a gangster. It received good reviews, and he was paid well. So well, in fact, that he paid off all his father's debts and still had $1,000 in the bank. Then Humphrey picked up the phone and called it an old favor, and soon he found himself working at Warner's for 400 a month, doing a film version of the play. Then his pay increased to 650 a month, and he stayed busy acting while his roles got better and the money kept increasing. All the while, as his persona began to loom large, he didn't know it, but he had a serious fan in young Betty Bacall. Betty's mom was soon divorced and changed her name from Weinstein, meaning glass of wine in Romanian, to Bacall, meaning glass of wine in German. Her mom was much happier living singly with just her daughter, who she spoiled when she could. Betty was sent to Highland Manor, a private girls' school, and to Camp Canahaw in Connecticut in the summer. She was also finding time to attend the theater with her friend Betty Kalb. One day in 1936, the two went to see Marked Woman at the 68th Street Theater. It was a 1937 film starring Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis, called Marked Woman, playing at the 68th Street Theater. 
Betty Cobb later recalled her 13-year-old friend saying, I'm crazy about that man. I love Betty Davis, but I should be playing opposite him. A few months later, when Betty Davis came to New York to promote one of her films, the two Bettys waited, the two Bettys waited four hours in the Gotham Hotel lobby for Davis to appear, then rode up the elevator with her and followed her down a corridor just to hear her say, Damn it, I forgot my key. Betty Bacall didn't care much for high school, but what she missed there she was getting from her Saturday morning dramatic classes at Mrs. Dreyer's School of Dramatic Theater. She continued in high school and in dramatic theater, always hoping she would make it some day to the big lights. Meanwhile, Bogey had purchased a sailboat which he kept at Newport Beach, and his wife Mary had returned to New York to act. He got close to an actress named Mayo Mathot, and they started spending lots of time together. To make a long story short, Mary came back, said Bogey had to give up his girlfriend or get divorced, but he couldn't give up Mayo. In fact, he had promised to marry her. Then Mary returned to New York, filed for a divorce, and when that came through, Bogey, feeling that he needed to keep his promise to Mayo, married a third time and bought a big Spanish-style house on Horn Avenue over the Sunset Strip, complete with 21 finches, five canaries, four dogs, an equal number of cats, and a garden of sweet peas that he tended himself. In these idyllic surroundings, he and Mayo began to, as he put it, perfect the technique of the marital quarrel. At the same time, his career took a fast upward turn. The following year, Betty Bacall turned 15 and graduated from the Julia Richmond School. She then took up ballet and dance in addition to her acting studies. She took a loan from her brother and began attending the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, starting classes October 1, 1940, with about 150 other students, including Marlon Brando's sister Jocelyn, Nina Folk, and Diana Dill, who was then dating a soda jerk, one of those guys with the white shirt and cap who worked filling soda glasses at the nearby pharmacy, named Kirk Douglas. When year two at the academy arrived, Betty didn't have the money, and she and her mom decided it was high time to put all that learning to work. So Betty started haunting producers' offices, hoping for a break. Without a pal on the inside, such as Humphrey had had, finding any work at all was just about impossible. While Betty Bacall was at her lowest tide, Bogey had been offered a starring role in High Sierra, which he knocked out of the park. Next up came the Maltese Falcon, in which Bogey played the tragic hero, private detective Sam Spade, directed by John Huston. Sidney Greenstreet, who would soon be acting across from Bogart in Casablanca, and Peter Lorre, who had become a close friend of Bogey's, played in the film as well. Bogart who stole the show. After the filming, Bogey and Mayo vacationed at the Algonquin Motel, which later sent them a bill for the wreckage their argument caused, a bill which they proudly hung up over the mantel in their L.A. home. It was not a marriage destined to last. Then came 1942 and Casablanca. As they got into it, everyone, including Bogart, the director Mike Curtiz, the writers, and Bogart's co-star Ingrid Bergman, thought the picture was going to be terrible. As we explained in last week's episode Casablanca, the movie was key to the war headlines of the day, portraying the intrigue between the pro- and anti-fascist forces in North Africa for the Allied African offensive. While Bogart was working on the scenes, including the bedroom scene with Ingrid Bergman, Mayo was on the telephone to the set constantly. She was jealous of Ingrid Bergman and convinced that something was going on between the two. She threatened to kill Bogart if he left her. Sam Jaffe and Bogie's agent Mary Baker took out a $100,000 life insurance policy on him, just in case. But he survived the film and wife Mayo and began working on a film called Action in the North Atlantic, which, by the way, I saw a few years ago, and it's another great Bogard movie. I wouldn't be surprised if he was technical advisor, because the main character was on a merchant marine ship hounded by submarines in World War II in the North Atlantic, and it's a great adventure piece. Meanwhile, Betty Bacall had found photo work with Harper's Magazine, where she landed her picture on the cover. To celebrate, she and a girlfriend went to Times Square to take in a movie. It was the Maltese Falcon. It was 1942. In Hollywood, director Howard Hawks was looking for just the right face to play across from Bogey in a film based on a Hemingway story called To Have and Have Not. Hawks' wife Slim was glancing at the latest cover of Harper's Bazaar, which had arrived with the morning mail. Hawks' wife told him, You ought to take a look at this girl. 
"'She might be just what you're looking for. "'What are the odds, you're thinking? "'Yeah, me too. "'Hawks called his secretary and put her on the hunt for Betty Bacall. "'Hawks had a proven ability for making stars. "'He had given Rita Hayworth her first film break "'and had talked Carol Lombard into a highly successful career as a comedian. "'Hawks' secretary sent Betty Bacall a train ticket for a ride to L.A. to do a screen test.' But Betty's luck had just turned around in New York, and she was on the verge of signing a contract to appear as Miss Harper's Bazaar in the Columbia musical picture Cover Girl, when she received the invite from Howard Hawks. She was now 18, and aside from school and camp, she had never been away from home. She met with her uncle and mother for a long discussion, and it was decided that, yes, she could go to Hollywood, but she had to call home every night. "'and she was warned about the wolves in Hollywood. "'But Hawks was a very well-known and very honorable director. "'A week or so later, Leo Guild, "'then a young press agent who had recently arrived from New York himself, "'picked her up at the train station. "'Then he drove her to the Beverly Hills Hotel, "'just off Sunset Boulevard, "'in the heart of a palm grove in the center of Beverly Hills. "'She had just enough time to freshen up "'and run a brush through her hair before her appointment.' Guild took the Coldwater Canyon route from Beverly Hills to Burbank, the home of Warner Studios. Hawks was waiting for her in his office on the lot. Through their short interview, Hawks could see that she was nervous. He watched her closely. After they talked, he offered to send her to three or four studios on the Warner Complex to see about work. To which she replied, she did want to work. Now. He had also listened to her voice carefully. Now he told her that the women he used in pictures were not necessarily of any age, but they certainly did not have high nasal voices, which she did. You wouldn't be able to read the lines, he said. How do I change my voice, she answered. I don't know, Hawks said, but I can tell you how my best actor, Walter Huston, got his voice. You have to find out where your voice is coming from, and then you have to practice to get it lower. You might get a board and put it on top of a table, prodding yourself in the stomach, and speak from down there. After you've gained control of your voice, read aloud from a book as if you're reading to an audience. And if I do that, will you teach me how to act? No, answered Hawk, but I'll try to teach you to non-act. When you've got your voice down, come and see me again, and we'll give you a try. Intrigued by your positive attitude and appearance, he then arranged from the studio paymaster enough money to pay for her hotel bill for a month and sent her on her way. That night, Betty called her mother and pleaded with her to join her in Beverly Hills. Within a week, Mrs. Bacall arrived with Droopy, their cocker spaniel, in tow. They moved to a small furnished apartment in order to keep expenses down, and Betty began working immediately with her voice. Mrs. Bacall and Droopy listened each night as Betty read to them. She also went early in the morning to vacant beaches and did a lot of shouting in her low voice, enough shouting that it made her hoarse. After three weeks, she went to see Hawks, giving him a deep and real hello. I had to admire her, said Hawks. She had practiced every day for three weeks and had mastered it. I suggested she keep it up until it became natural. He then invited her to lunch and then to a personal party at his home to see how she interacted with people. Most of the guests were drinking, and she didn't drink. She felt uncomfortable. When the party was over, she asked Hawks for a ride home, and he answered, Couldn't you have asked one of the men? I don't get along too well with them, and most of them were married, she answered. He said, You were too nice. Try insulting one of them next time. I'll invite you to another get-together next week. The following Saturday night, Betty was a guest at another party at Hawk's home. When the party ended, she went over to him and said, I got a ride, and she was grinning. Good for you, he said. What did you do? I did what you told me to do. I insulted a man. I asked him where he got his tie. He said, Why do you want to know? I answered, So I could tell other people not to go there. Hawks was delighted. Who was the man? he asked. She answered, Clark Gable. That night, Hawks tossed and turned, thinking of how he could turn this young actress into a star. She now had the deep voice, she had the sultry looks, 
and an almost masculine quality to her character. He decided he would use Betty's raw material and turn her into another Marlene Dietrich. The following morning he suggested to write Jules Firthman to change the character of the girl into Have or Have Not, whose name was Slim, and make her insolent, a sort of a wise-cracking beauty. In a conversation later, head writer Firthman said, Like Marlene Dietrich? Exactly, said Hawks. Later that week, at lunch in the studio commissary, Hawks saw Bogey eating alone at a table and joined him. Bogart asked him how the script was coming, and Hawks commented that he was going to try something different with it. He said, I'm going to try to make the girl as insolent as you are. Bogart grinned and said, Fat chance of that. But Hawks went further. We're writing the part for her now. Watch out. She'll steal scenes from you and leave you with egg on your face. Want to bet on it? was Bogey's reply. For Betty, there began weeks of coaching, practicing her new low voice until it became natural, and waiting. At one point, they convinced her that her first name, Betty, had to go. They tried hundreds of first-name suggestions. Finally, she chose the name Lauren in honor of her maternal grandparent. By the end of November, she had passed every screen test, and Hawks was satisfied having her play the role of leading lady. There was only one obstacle left. Bogart had the right to approve of his female star or not. Bogey was having problems, to put it mildly, with his wife of six years, Mayo. He was 44 and basking in the success of his two most recent pictures, The Maltese Falcon and Casablanca. Humphrey and his wife were known well to the press and friends as the Battling Bogarts. Their home even had a sign out front called Sluggy Hollow, and their 36-foot cruiser was called Sluggy, and so was the Scotty Dog. Mayo had acted in one good movie, after which her acting career sank while her weight gained, and she was bitter. She demeaned his success and put him down publicly and privately, constantly nagging at him to get her a role in one of his movies. It wasn't unusual for them to have screaming matches in public. Bogart was chock full of funny anecdotes about their sour relationship. Once he told reporter George Frazier about the night he and Mayo were emerging from the 21 Club in Manhattan and they were besieged by autograph hounds. Actually, he was besieged. And he got in the car first, slamming the door on Mayo, who was left on the sidewalk with dozens of his fans. The awareness that she was surrounded by a gibbering mob of bogey fans enraged her even further, and she screamed, That cheap little ham actor! and other epithets as his cab pulled away. One youth in the crowd closed his autograph book and said to his buddy, Gee, she's even tougher than he is. She had threatened to shoot him more than once, and then lightheartedly tried suicide, cutting both her wrists, but not too deeply. She had become close with Bogey's mother, and Bogey felt he owed her for that, so she did have a good side. But if anyone was poised for a jump off the marriage train, he was, provided the right spark showed at the right time. The first cast reading for To Have and Have Not was held on March 6, 1944, on stage 16 of the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank. The sound stage was just what you would expect from a warehouse full of sets. A gloom of light emanated from a back corner, where a dozen men, all perched on the steel bridgework above, connected all the right sound cables and checked fuses. Scattered coffee cups, scripts, donut boxes, and crew surrounded the cast, some standing, some seated, which included director Hawks, Bogey, Miss Bacall, songwriter-actor Hoagie Carmichael, Walter Brennan, script girl Meta Wild, Warner Brothers contract star Dolores Moran, and actor Dan Seymour. Author William Faulkner sat to the side, he having been brought in to rewrite changes in Firthman's script on a day-to-day -day basis. Faulkner was a salaried co-writer at 300 a week, about one-tenth of what Firthman was making. Faulkner had had some problems with the bottle, and the deal was that if he could stay off the hooch, he could stay and write script changes, etc., and he was averaging about three pages a day, enough for each day's filming. To have and have not had a shooting schedule of three months. This was 1944. Today, it could be done in one-third of the time. The film, as written by Firthman and Faulkner, had strayed away from the Hemingway story. But in Hollywood, that's nothing new. It did have many of the same winning elements of Casablanca. A rough-and-ready American expatriate surrounded by French war politics, a sentimental piano player, in this case Hoagie Carmichael, and a beautiful girl. The action takes place on the French-owned island of Martinique, 
with Bogart playing the owner of a motorboat, which he rents to prospective fishermen. Miss Bacall was to play a young woman with a past who was stranded without funds on the island. Bogart's character, like Rick Blaine, was tough and cynical, and he approached his romance without any frills, head-on. It was to be Bogart meets girl, with some war added to give it a backdrop and some danger. As to the similarity between Casablanca and this one, Hawks had no problems with trying to copy a successful idea. I remembered that Hawks had directed the John Wayne movie Rio Bravo. And wasn't there a very similar Western release not too long after that? I checked. Yep, El Dorado, another Hawks film, borrowed heavily from Rio Bravo. And he didn't stop there. Rio Lobo contained more elements from both. I guess you can call that a Hawks trademark. Putting that aside, imagine how Betty Bacall must have felt there on that soundstage, having been in L.A. for just 30 days now, knowing she was the leading lady in the next Bogart film. I wonder if Nervous describes it. Practically all these people with her had worked together on previous movies. Hawks had set up her first scene to be quick and easy, using just six words, figuring it would get her past the jitters. The setting is the hallway in a seedy Martinique hotel. Bogey, accompanied by the hotel proprietor, who he calls Frenchy, is about to enter his room, because Frenchy has something important he needs to tell him. The door opposite them opens, and Betty, wearing a simple black and white checked suit, comes out with an unlighted cigarette in her hand, and stands in the doorway of Bogey's room. She sees Frenchy first, and asks him, "'Have you got a match?' He searches his pockets, and turns to Bogart, who's been searching his pockets, but to no avail." "'I think I've got some in here,' Bogey says, opening a table drawer and pulling out a box of matches. Betty pauses in the doorway, leaning against the door sill, and looks into the room while Bogey opens the table drawer. He looks at Betty as he takes out a box of matches and tosses it to her. "'Here you are,' he says. Betty catches the box coolly, extracts a match, lights a cigarette, closes the box, tosses it back to him, and says, "'Thanks,' and then leaves." Sounds easy, doesn't it? Betty said later, I was so scared I was shaking like a leaf, and I kept dropping the matchbox and the matches. When I tried to light the cigarette, my head was shaking so I couldn't get the flame to light the cigarette. Bogey started kidding me out of nervousness and helping me. Pretty soon, everything was easy, and I relaxed. It was as if I'd known him always. Mickey Seltzer, who worked for Warner in the studio publicity department, was on the set watching the scene, and she said, The electricity between them was not to be believed. It was so tangible you could feel it in the air. I knew something was going to come of it. As the days passed, Bogey stayed on the set for her parts, sharing coffee, offering advice, and sometimes disappearing into his trailer for long talks. Before thirty days were gone, it was obvious to everyone that the two were having a romance. There was a gentleman's agreement amongst publicity people and gossip colonists and Warner workers not to divulge any opinions or photographs until the divorce was public. So what happened at Warner Studios pretty much stayed at Warner Studios. For Betty Bacall, as far as Humphrey Bogart went, her opinions had done a full 360-degree change since she was 13 and watching her first Bogart movie. Then she had thought him dark and exciting, and she wanted to play opposite him. By age 18, after seeing his tough screen persona once too many times, she figured he was just another one of those D's, D's, and Dem guys who had made it big, but really knew nothing. Now, she shared a mutual intense attraction with a man more than twice her age, who was surprisingly well-read, had a good knowledge of American history and Greek mythology, a man who could quote Plato, Emerson, Pope, and the English dramatist, as well as more than a thousand lines of Shakespeare. He also filled the need for a father figure in her life, his age giving him the experience and compassion that men of her age could never attain. He didn't want her as a mistress. He wanted her as a wife, and he swore that it was only a matter of time before he was divorced from Mayo. Weeks of filming went by while Bogey went back to his home and Mayo at night, and Betty went back to her apartment with her mom and Cocker Spaniel. Bogey found constant excuses to leave home to party with the cast, but really just to visit Betty and talk. There were a few close calls, but thus far Mayo, who was drinking heavily, hadn't caught him, and he hadn't told her anything. 
When the news of his affair did reach her, thanks to an enterprising fan magazine reporter, she locked Bogey in the bathroom and stood waiting outside with gun in hand, threatening to kill him if he left for the studio. When Bogey failed to arrive at work on time, the studio sent Jake Rosenstein to the Bogart house to see what was the matter. It took two hours to convince Mayo to let Bogey leave for work. When she finally agreed not to kill him, Bogart headed for his room and packed a small suitcase full of personal belongings, intending to move into the small dressing room that the studio offered. Mayo was frantic, and family friends quickly got hold of Bogey upon his return, saying that she would kill herself, or Betty, or him, or all of them, if he didn't intervene. So he went home and tried to work it out. For the last week of To Have and Have Not, Bogey and Betty worked together during the day, but he went home every night to face Mayo and the battles he knew would be there waiting for him. A few days after To Have and Have Not wrapped up, which was May 10th, Bogey and Mayo went to the sluggy for the weekend to try and patch it up, but it was by now impossible. Bogey called a studio friend and asked him to ask Betty to pick him up on Highway 101. I've left Mayo, he said. I'm walking to town. It was 4 a.m. on Highway 101 when Betty spotted him plodding down the highway wearing rope-soled shoes and carrying a suitcase. She stopped the car and Bogey got in. His first words were, God, how I need you. It didn't end just like that. Bogey felt indebted to Mayo, for although it had been turbulent, it had been a good seven years, and he didn't want to throw it away just like that. He must not have believed that she would shoot him, because he did return to the house, worked on the garden, did some fix-em-ups, and tried to work out his marriage. He slowed way down on the drinking. He promised Mayo that he would not flaunt his relationship with Betty. Meanwhile, he introduced Betty to his friends, including Peter Lorre, who became her number one champion. Betty had gotten a good part in the big sleep, although the pay was only 250 a week, less than she had made as a model. Bogey would visit the set to lend her advice by taking her aside or sharing it in the privacy of her dressing room. Betty later recalled one scene in which the doorbell rang in the enormous mansion where she lived in the film. She had to answer the door. They had a few run-throughs, and just before the take, Bogey took her to one side and said, "'You've been walking to the door like a model,' he said. "'You must always realize in a scene that you've just come from someplace else. Ask yourself,' What was I just doing? What was I doing before? Was I finally my nails? Combing my hair? You should have an attitude when you walk toward the door. Late in October, To Have and Have Not was released, and the reviews were very good. Lauren Bacall became a star. Marlene Dietrich called Hawks from New York and said, You SOB! That's me 20 years ago! Warner Brothers was thrilled. A rival studio had offered $75,000 for Betty's services in a new film. The Cinderella myth that has forever been linked to Hollywood had come true again, this time for Betty Bacall. Bogey was living at the studio. Just before Christmas of 44, Mayo called him and pleaded with him to return home. I've changed, she said. He told Betty, I had to go back. I wouldn't throw a dog out in the street in her condition. I have to give her every chance. And he did go back. He gave Mayo a diamond and ruby ring for a Christmas present. Again, they went to Newport and stayed aboard the sluggy to talk it out. And again, Betty ended up picking him up on Highway 101 the next morning. That broke it. He called columnist Noel Parsons and said, Yes, it was time to announce the pending divorce. No more coming to the studio with war wounds from home life. Parsons wrote a respectful column not mentioning anything about a second woman. And for Christmas, Betty McCall got bogey for good. There's a famous scene in To Have and Have Not where Bacall, in the role of Marion Slim Browning, says to bogey, If you want me, just whistle. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. That Christmas, her gift from bogey was a gold whistle bearing the inscription, if you want anything, just whistle. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. Betty Bacall was on her way. She received a large cash bonus from Warner, and her film salary on the big sleep soared. She headed for Palm Springs after Christmas with Bogey, 
and Bogey played golf while she tooled around in the cart and watched. She took lessons at the racket club while Bogey chased balls, and they lunched on cold crab and lobster. For the first time they were seen in public strolling hand in hand down the desert town's main street, pausing to ogle the paintings on display at sidewalk art galleries. Every night they dined at restaurants or at the homes of Hollywood friends. The divorce from Mayo came through on May 10, 1945, and the two were married on May 21st. Vogue magazine reported on May 21, 1945, one of the greatest celebrity weddings of all time took place not in a castle in Europe or a ballroom in Hollywood, but on an experimental farm in rural Ohio. The marriage of Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart came as a breath of fresh air during a tense, hopeful time in American history. The Allied victory in Europe was just two weeks old. An exhausted nation was then digging in for a final confrontation with Japan while looking forward to a time when normal life could resume again. The farm was called Malabar, and it was no ordinary farm. It was owned by prize-winning author Louis Bromfield, who had profited mightily from the sale of his first two books to movie houses. Bromfield was on a one-man mission to improve agriculture. After seeing the destruction caused by the Dust Bowl, the rise of factory farms, and the spread of new chemicals, he swore to spend the rest of his life improving agriculture, and he was a friend of Bogey's. His home there at Malabar was huge, and Bogey and Mayo had spent time there enjoying the life on the farm between bouts with Mayo, who especially enjoyed throwing records and destroying crystal lamps, both of which made lots of noise when they hit walls. It was possible that Bogey felt so guilty about all the destruction during past visits that he chose Bromfield's farm for his wedding, figuring the publicity wouldn't hurt Bromfield. And it didn't. When they returned to Hollywood, they were greeted and congratulated by everyone, from the gaffers to the head of the studios, one of which gifted Mrs. Bogart a new car. Bogey was given a substantial increase in salary, and they were both getting first choice in films. Then came the Santana, a sailboat which was the pride of the Pacific Coast, owned by Dick Powell. Bogey bought it for $55,000, and Powell agreed to take it on a shakedown cruise the next day. But Bogey and Bacall couldn't wait. They went down the night before so they could sleep on her, and he could admire the sleekness and beauty of her lines. Yes, the boat. Bogey even brought a can of brass polish for the bright work, not that it was needed, but the gesture was appreciated. Early in the morning, Powell appeared out of the fog in his dinghy. When the engine got going, with Powell at the helm, they ran out of the harbor and passed the jetty. There was no wind, and the haze was too thick to see Catalina. But they decided to hoist the sails anyway so Bogey could find out where everything was located. Betty made dinner that night. The next day they got some wind, the sails filled, and the Santana leaned over, her bow splitting the waves with neat slices. Bogey was ecstatic. The Santana became a part of both of their lives, and they would live on her for three or four months at a time. But Betty, after a while, stayed home on weekends, tending to the house and garden, happily, while Bogey sailed with his pals. He called her twice a day to see how her day was coming along. Neither one of them was drinking heavily, and both were happy. Life was good. One night, Dave Chasen, the owner of Chasen's Restaurant, told them that Hedy Lamar wanted to sell her house, called Hedgerow Farms, completely furnished, consisting of 14 rooms and three levels, with a pool and a large guest house for the staff. The two bought the house, the address, 2707 Benedict Canyon Road in Beverly Hills, and they moved in in May of 1946. Bogart was a cult hero, a knight of the true way, as Rat Pack Confidential author Sean Levy noted. He did his work best by being something no one else could be, himself. He and Betty opened their home and their boat to friends when they were down and out. Sinatra was a good friend of Bogey's, and he was often down and out. They met in 1945, when Frank's career had taken a tail dive, and it was a deep dive. They ran into each other for the first time at Players, the Sunset Boulevard restaurant and theater owned by Preston Sturges. "'They tell me you have a voice that makes girls faint,' said Bogart. "'Make me faint.' Sinatra stood right up to him. "'I've taken the week off,' he said. Bogart liked the response, and he ended up liking the star that he called the jug-eared kid. And Frank idolized Bogey. They became pals. Once at a party, 
A date of Franks declared, in Bogey's presence, "'You sound like Bogey sometimes.' Bogey replied, "'Don't mind him, dear. He's trying to kick it.' In 1949, Sinatra moved his family from Toluca Lake to Homeby Hills, just a few blocks from Bogey's place. Sinatra organized a guys-only baby shower for Bogey when Betty was pregnant with her first child. And that first child had cost Bogey his hair. He had started taking hormone treatments to help his sterility, and that worked, but he lost most of his hair in the process, and was wearing a toupee. After Frank left Nancy, he often crashed at Bogey and Betty's house. "'He's always here,' Bogey said to a reporter one day. "'I think we're parents' substitutes for him, or something.' But Call empathized with Frank's need for companionship, and Bogey warned her not to get wrapped up in it. "'It's too bad if he's lonely, but that's his choice. We've got our own road to travel. Never forget that. We can't live his life.' Bogart was one of the few of Sinatra's friends who didn't mind telling him off now and then. There was the time Bogart hosted Sinatra, David Niven, and Richard Burden for a night of drinking on the Santana. Frank was in the dumps, his career was ebbing, and he passed part of the night on deck, serenading yachters on other boats nearby. Frank was in the dumps over his loss of Ava Gardner. Bogey grew so irate with his preening performance, recalled Richard Burton, that they nearly came to blows on the deck. It was Betty Bacall, known to many of the Hollywood people now as Lauren Bacall, coined the term Rat Pack, and here's how it happened. In June of 1955, Sinatra gathered a dozen of his pals, including Bogey and Bacall, and took off to see Noel Coward's opening at the Desert Inn in Las Vegas. During that night, the group had been drinking heavily, minus Mrs. Bogart, who was startled at their debauched appearance when she caught a glimpse of them ringside in a casino room. She looked around at all of them, Frank, Bogey, Judy Garland, David Niven, restaurateur Mike Romanoff, literary agent Swifty Lazar and his date Martha Heyer, Jimmy Van Heusen and his date Angie Dickinson, and a few others. "'You look like a G.D. Rat Pack,' she muttered. That broke them up. The next night, back at Romanoff's in Hollywood Hills, she walked in and said, "'I see the Rat Pack's all here.' Then they took hold of it and assigned names within the pack, with Bacall being named Denmother. Bogart was named Rat in charge of public relations. Of course, through the years, the Rat Pack names dwindled down to Frank, Sammy, Dean, Peter, and Joey. But that's another story, and we've covered it in three episodes you can search for in our archives titled The Rat Pack 1, 2, and 3. Bogart and Bacall went through a string of great movies, and almost always together. Betty sometimes cast as Bogart's leading lady, as she was in Dark Passage, The Big Sleep, Key Largo, and then sometimes she was just there for Bogey, cooking breakfast, providing support in every way she could, as she did in The Treasure of Sierra Madre and The African Queen, which I'll get to in a few minutes. On January 6, 1949, a baby son, who they named Stephen, was born at the Cedars of Lebanon Hospital. Bogey became a dedicated daddy instantly. Yes, they had a dedicated nurse who assisted Betty in all things. But Bogey did try to stay involved every way he could. Every morning before leaving for the studio, he went into the kitchen to check on the preparation of the baby's formula evaporated milk, dextromaltose, cod liver oil, and ascorbic acid. And every night he came home after work to spend a couple of hours with Stephen before he went to bed. After Stephen Humphrey came Leslie Howard Bogard. The making of the African Queen, for which Bogart won an Academy Award, on location, in deepest Africa, is a story in itself, and I'll give you the highlights, gleaned from Joe Hyams' Bogart and Bacall, A Love Story, written back in 1973. Great book. In 1950, Bogey got a call from director John Huston, announcing that he'd found a great story, one in which the hero is a lowlife, the biggest lowlife in town, and therefore, Bogey, you're the most suitable for the part, he said. Huston's story was the African Queen, a story by author C.S. Forrester about an English missionary woman, having just lost her husband, who persuades a gin-soaked river rat boatman to escort her safely away from her outlying mission post in German-held territory in Africa, where she was no longer safe. Other studios had thus far turned it down, because the only way it could be filmed was on location, in Africa, and that was an expensive and dangerous proposition. 
"'Africa had all kinds of bugs and reptiles that could kill. "'Huston had picked Catherine Hepburn "'for the role of the prim and stodgy woman, "'who was also a model of New England purity "'in manner and custom. "'And that pretty much matched Hepburn. "'An inexperienced eye might say "'she wouldn't have to act much for that part. "'Huston took Bogart to meet her at her big, "'well-hidden house on a hill to discuss the picture. "'She announced to both of them that she liked the part "'and would be happy to be in it. "'Bogie later said, "'She regarded us as a couple of disgusting old men "'who were badly in need of her guidance. "'And it was true. "'She knew all about Bogie's drinking and his friends and his divorces, "'and she didn't think much of him in that regard. "'Bogie and Bacall left for Africa via New York "'after arranging for Stephen's welfare and care by the nurse and staff.' They arrived in London and were put up at the Swank Claridge's, only to find out that the producer, Sam Siegel, who had a reputation for being a little too slick with his deal-making and money, had lost his investors. But now he had an idea. If Bogart would invest in the movie himself, and Huston, Bogie, and Hepburn would defer their salaries in order to get the picture made, he could pull it off. They all talked about it, and they finally agreed. "'but Hepburn had one condition. "'You will cover our hotel and related expenses,' she told him. "'Betty had not known Catherine Hepburn previously, "'although Hepburn had been one of her film idols in the past. "'But after that moment, they'd got along famously. "'But it was a long time before Hepburn accepted Bogey into her good graces. "'Not too long, though, as Bogey did things to win her over, "'such as stopping by her room and asking if she needed anything.' and during the flight to Africa, he constantly asked if she was okay or needed anything. The film was shot in the wilds of the Belgian Congo and Uganda. Betty was with Bogey throughout most of it, sometimes providing food, at other times making sure everyone had their anti-malaria tablets. Bogey kept up with his scotch, convinced that booze would save him from malaria. It turned out he was one of the few who didn't get it, or even a mild form of it, while they were there. He would take snoozes on a hammock, "'and set himself up on a raft in the river, "'and swore that when the mosquitoes bit him, "'they rolled over either dead or drunk. "'His part called for a grizzled old drinker and river rat "'who knew everything there was to know "'about his steamboat and the river and bad gin. "'And so he became the character. "'And Miss Hepburn, convinced that both Bogey "'and Director Huston were profligate sinners, "'lectured them on the evils of drinking. "'This she preached off-camera, and even on camera to the river rat, which was her part to do. The humidity on the river was so extreme that it mildewed all the costumes, covering them with green mold. The water was lousy with crocodiles. At night, the camp was often invaded by soldier ants. Drink in hand, one night, Bogart was cheering on the crew who were burning oil and yelling and scrambling to divert the column of ants away from the camp. Later, Bogart said of Hepburn, She's so damn cheerful. She's got ants in her pants, mildew in her shoes, and she's still cheerful. I build a solid wall of whiskey between me and the bugs. She doesn't drink, and she breezes through it all as though it were a weekend in Connecticut. The movie opened on December 26, 1951, at the Fox Wilshire Theater in Beverly Hills, in time to qualify for the 24th Academy Awards. The film netted four nominations. Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart, which he won, Best Actress for Catherine Hepburn, Best Director John Huston, and Best Screenplay James Agee or John Huston. In 1998, The African Queen was voted number 17 in the American Film Institute's 100 Years of Movies. It's one of the best movies from the golden era that I've ever seen. It's got a fantastic ending, and I highly recommend it. That's The African Queen. In 1956, Bogey, who had been a heavy smoker to the end, was diagnosed with esophageal cancer. He would hang on through the latter half of that year, 1956, with support from his close circle of friends and his family. When the end approached, Bogart showed courage at all times, an absolute love for Betty and his kids, who were being robbed of a father, and Betty was losing the love of her life. She had done her best as a mom, a professional actor, a loving wife and friend, and a housemaker, and for the twelve years they loved each other like few Hollywood couples had ever done. At 2.10 on the morning of January 14, 1957, Bogey took his last breath. Betty was 33, and she was on her own for the first time in her life. She told a friend when Bogey died, 
the bottom dropped out of my life. The house was no longer frequented by all the friends that used to stop by, and she didn't know if it was because they were his friends and not hers, or because they were embarrassed and didn't know how to face her grief, thinking maybe they were just bringing painful memories. The fact was, she wanted desperately to see friends. The children obviously had broken hearts as well. On Father's Day, eight-year-old Stephen stood in the driveway crying, I want my daddy. I want my daddy. Eight months after Bogie's death, Betty sold the big house and gave a lot of the furniture to Goodwill and went back to work acting. She rented a smaller house in the same neighborhood. In 1961, she married Jason Robards and a son they named Sam was born the following November. They moved into a 10-room apartment called the Dakota in New York City's Central Park at Central Park West and 72nd Street. As the years passed, Bogie's name and fame only increased, and Betty, now more Lauren than Betty, was called upon by authors and journalists to discuss the past, and Bogart, who had a huge cult of new followers who admired his ability to stand alone and apart from all the smugness and hypocrisy of Hollywood, he called it like it was. She divorced Robards in September of 1969, her work and their incompatibility being the major causes of the rift. She stayed busy, and she appeared in some well-known movies. She was in Paul Newman's 1966 mystery film, Harper, and John Wayne's The Shootist, one of my favorite John Wayne movies, as well as The Stage, where she performed Home and Abroad to standing ovations. In October of 1969, a grandchild was born to her from her son Stephen, who is currently a news producer and documentary filmmaker. His son's name? Jamie Humphrey Bogart. Her daughter, Leslie, who, like her mother, was a great beauty, graduated from BU, and is currently, if my information is right, a nurse and yoga instructor. Sam Robards is an actor. She wrote two autobiographies, Lauren Bacall's By Myself in 1978 and Now in 2006. Bacall left us on August 12, 2014, one month before her 90th birthday at the Dakota. In a 1996 interview, she told the interviewer Jeremy Isaacs that she'd been lucky. She said, I had one great marriage. I have three great children and four grandchildren. I'm still alive. I can still function. I still can work. You just learn to cope with whatever you have to cope with. I spent my childhood in New York riding on subways and buses. And you know what you learn if you're a New Yorker? That the world doesn't owe you a damn thing. Thanks for joining us here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Be sure to check out our other podcasts, and I'll remind you of one. That one is 1001 Radio Days, where I'm now running a month of Bogan Bacall's only radio collaboration. And it was a big hit called Bold Venture. Try out a few episodes at 1001 Radio Days, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. We do appreciate reviews very much at 1001 Heroes, especially from you Apple listeners. If you have a moment and you enjoy our show, please do send us a good review for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We also appreciate our supporters at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. It's a great way to get access to over 400 of our archive shows at some of our 1001 Network shows, all ad-free. Check it out. We'll return next Sunday night with a brand new story from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Until then, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon. Here's some last-minute bloopers for you. And it was a big hit for a year. <clears throat> and it... <clears throat> and it... And it... <laughs> disappeared in the last 20 words. <clears throat> and it was a big hit called Bold Venture. Try out a few episodes at 1001 Radio Days, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. <clears throat> Planes now flying overhead. I'm glad I finished.
remember both of you are natives of New York. Uh, do you miss this big town very much? No. Yes. Wait a minute. <laughs> well, that's a nice uh, normal family disagreement, but uh, tell me, don't either of you get a yen to do a Broadway play? Yes, I No. I think, I'll tell you what, I think that uh, uh, you're going to run into kind of a traffic jam if you ask two actors uh, one question. I think you better take oh, us one by one. All right, I'll, I'll break it up. Uh, uh, put the first one to you. Have you sort of lost your appetite for playing before live audiences, Bogey? Well, I have, uh, uh, Ed, because I did an awful lot of it when I was a kid. I started in 21, and, uh, and I was in seven smash hits in a row, and... Uh, uh, I thought the world was my oyster, and I came to Hollywood and uh, was a terrible flop here, and then I went back to New York and was in four big flops there, and I swore if I ever got to Hollywood again, I'd stay here. I like it here, and so I think I have lost my appetite for the Broadway theater. I think possibly maybe a little ambition, because I believe that ambition belongs to youth. Uh-huh. Old Betty, what kind of play would interest you? Well, anything good, of course. Any actor wants anything good, and uh, I don't know whether I'm equipped for it or not. I hope uh, uh, to be better equipped for it in a couple of years, but of course that remains to be seen, and if I'm not better equipped for it, needless to say, uh, I'll be out of everything. I think, you, I think you're equipped for anything, Betty. Thank you. Well, Betty, uh, did you ever see Bogey on the Broadway stage? No, I can't say that I did, Ed. Uh, that was, if you'll pardon me, before my time. Or at least I was in a very three-cornered pants at the time. <laughs> but uh, I, I did see him in many motion pictures. And uh, I may say, and this is strictly between us, of course, yes. uh, he was not a favorite of mine. It's only fair that I tell you that. I figured that he was one of those, uh, you know... I, I believed everything that I saw in pictures. And when I first came out here under contract to Howard Hawks, uh, Howard told me that he would like me to appear in my first picture opposite either Cary Grant or Humphrey Bogart. Well, of course, Cary Grant was heaven to me, and Bogart was horror. <laughs> and because I was convinced that Bogart was strictly a, a D's-Dem and Do's. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Bogart. You know, that, uh, that ain't true, Ed. It ain't. <laughs> ain't true no how, huh? <laughs> no, it ain't true. Uh, Bogie, what is the worst thing that you can recall that a critic ever said about you? Well, the, uh, uh, the worst thing that a critic ever said about me was said uh, in the first play that I appeared in, uh, a play called Swifty, I think it was, said by Alexander Wilkett, he said, the young man who embodies the aforesaid sprig is what might mercifully be described as inadequate.